1: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we speak with a CU Boulder professor about the outcome of the Derek Chauvin trial.
2: Plus, we hear about a new museum exhibit honoring the people who have died from COVID-19.
3: The purpose is to, to recognize that what impacts you impacts me. Your loss is my loss.
1: And we learn why the governor is handing some of his pandemic response powers to cities and counties.
2: Those stories and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
1: And I'm Erin O'Toole. On Tuesday afternoon, Minnesota jurors delivered their long-awaited verdicts in the trial of the former Minneapolis police officer who killed George Floyd in May 2020. The jury found Derek Chauvin guilty on each of the three charges he faced in Floyd's death.
2: To further discuss the verdict, we connected with Hillary Potter, an associate professor of ethnic studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. We spoke just after hearing the verdicts read aloud about how she was reacting to the news.
3: I am shocked. I really did not expect guilty verdict and a guilty verdict for all three charges. As an African-American, as a black person in this country who has ancestry going back to slavery, In this country, I've studied for many years and just hearing stories passed down about inequities, discrimination, violence against Black people generally, uh, Black people in my family, in my community, and then seeing the injustices over time in my community, but also as someone who studies this as as a criminologist, and over and over again, seeing it not, uh, as many people say, not go our way, meaning not go in the way of justice. And so expected much of the same with this. Um, However, when it it did come in, the verdict did come in early, I had a feeling that we were going to finally see justice in a case like this.
2: Do you think that these three guilty verdicts mean that justice in this case has been delivered? Or do you think justice um, is greater than just what we're seeing today?
3: It's definitely greater than what we see today. There's so much more work to be done. I, I do hope though that the family and other loved ones of George Floyd do feel some sense of justice. Of course there's, there's never any true justice when a life is taken or when someone is so traumatized they're and they, they live, uh, but they're so damaged from the trauma. But I hope they they do feel some reprieve. Uh, but it is one case, you, you are right, it is one case. And it's, there's so much more we need to do. And many of us, myself included, I'm 51 years old, and just uh, in 2021, that, that we're still struggling with these matters. And we know we know that that one case isn't going to do it. But But at least in the meantime, we can celebrate um, this case and that we have seen at least some form of justice.
2: How do you think these verdicts are going to impact how we remember this case? If I think of maybe similar cases like Rodney King or George Zimmerman, um, the acquittals, I think, are what we really remember. Do you think we'll really remember these guilty verdicts? I
3: do. I do. Uh, Yeah, we definitely remember uh, the, the long line of acquittals, but even from the beginning, because of so many other factors, when George Floyd was killed almost a year ago, that we were in this pandemic, that there was greater response by many individuals and corporations and organizations across the country, across the world, responding differently and at a greater scale in the wake of George Floyd's death, in the the killing of George Floyd, than they did in previous cases. Not that there wasn't a great response, but there wasn't that great response broadly, like I said, just across, beyond the black community, beyond um, uh, allies of the black community. And so I think it's going to continue from that, that we saw an unprecedented response last year. So I imagine that this somewhat unprecedented, not completely unprecedented, right, but um, unusual uh, finding of guilt uh, for three charges is going to be memorable. And hopefully, I know many of us will, will hope that it will be that turning point that we can point to in the future, or the younger folks can point to in the future, 2021, the guilty verdict of Derek Chauvin for George Floyd's death. That's what really turned our our country to truly make a difference with regard to racial discrimination and inequities. As I mentioned, there's there's still a lot of work we have to do and we just can't sit back and rest. We need to continue with um, our, our efforts in working towards social justice and racial justice.
2: Hillary Potter is with the Department of Ethnic Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. Hilary, thank you for speaking with us.
3: Thank you.
1: It's been nearly a month since the mass shooting at a King Soopers grocery store in Boulder that left 10 people dead. April 20th also marks 22 years since the tragic shooting at Columbine High School. Retired Principal Frank DeAngelis says the trauma is still with him and news of the Boulder incident sparked strong emotions. And he said the Boulder community will need to be patient with the process of recovery.
4: There are going to be needs that that community needs, you know, a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. And, you know, and even speaking on behalf of Columbine High School, 22 years later, there are still students, staff members. We can help
1: On Monday, Governor Jared Polis signed two gun-related bills that were being debated before the Boulder shooting. One deals with safe storage to help reduce accidental gun deaths and suicides. The other requires gun owners to report lost or stolen weapons or face a fine. The bill's sponsors say it would help fight firearms trafficking and reduce gun violence. But Republicans question how it would reduce gun violence if a missing weapon is already on the streets.
2: After issuing almost 400 executive orders related to the coronavirus, Governor Polis is starting to hand over some of his pandemic response powers to cities and counties. KUNC's Scott Franz spoke with the governor about this new phase of the pandemic.
5: We're entering a new phase of the pandemic where local governments are getting more control over what restrictions are in place. But you recently warned that the state is experiencing a a fourth wave of cases. Do you think now is still the right time to switch to this local control system?
4: Well, the fourth wave is different than the other waves because what we're seeing is record low numbers of hospitalizations of people in their 60s and 70s and 80s that have the worst outcomes. But we're seeing hospitalizations go up for people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And um, it's 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 typically shorter stays and better outcomes. Still, even at that age, not everybody makes it, which is tragic. But it's just a very different situation than when we had uh, the much higher mortality rates of people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. What's really important is that people get vaccinated. I mean, that will protect you. We're at close to 40 percent of adults that are vaccinated now, and especially for those who are vaccinated, they can have the confidence to go back out and relax a little. Uh, For those who haven't yet, you know, now, you know, the the virus is still very prevalent. Wear a mask, uh, avoid socializing with people outside of your home and just get vaccinated.
5: You've predicted we'll have a a relatively normal summer based on the vaccination rates. You know, has anything that's happened in the last few weeks with, with rising case numbers, with the pause on the the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Has anything changed your, your outlook yet for for what our summer's gonna look like?
4: Well I'm still hopeful and what everything we're hearing is the Johnson and Johnson pause will only be about a week. If, if it lingers, if that if that pause goes three, four, or five weeks, it, it will delay the state by a week or two in, in getting through everybody. So I'm as long as we get that back in the next week or so and it's safe and effective and, and uh it's one shot, it's preferred by a lot of people, as long as we get that back soon. I don't think it's a, I think it's just a hiccup in the road and it doesn't delay our vaccinated by mid to late May but if it lingers for a few weeks it could push that back to early June.
5: Another question that comes to mind, you know, it's been a month now since the tragic shooting in, in Boulder. Do you think the state legislature here in Colorado needs to, to take any more action on gun policy this session uh, beyond the two bills they've they've already sent you?
4: Of course, if there's any other bills that reach my desk, I'll take a look at them. I know there's certainly discussions about other things that could be done on mental health and gun safety.
5: But do you do you personally have any thoughts on policies that, that might need to to be done.
4: You can certainly learn from, you know, each incident, and, and part of the problem is you're always correcting for the last incident, and then the next one comes at you from a different corner. But in the case of the Ping Super shooting, um, it would have been a, a great example of how we could have used our red flag law, our extreme risk protection, protection order law. But in many, and I think this is the case across the state, families who could use it don't know about it. How do we do outreach, uh, multilingual, multicultural, to reach people, who have a situation where they're a 19-year-old, or 20-year-old, uh, they're worried about them, they have a weapon, uh, and how can they use that extreme risk protection? Or when you look at how they've been used uh, in the, what, you know, about that year and a half, two years since it's been the law, uh, it's been used more by law enforcement. And when it had been designed, it had been thought it would be used more by families, um, particularly parents of, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. That's a lot uh, of the age of onset of, of some of these um, psychological risk factors and I think it needs to be better publicized to make sure that people know that that's available to them.
5: Thanks so much for your time,
2: Governor. I really appreciate it.
4: Thank you. Take care.
2: That was KUNC's Scott Franz speaking with Governor Jared Polis.
1: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. More than 560,000 Americans have died of COVID-19 during the past year. This week, the Museum of Boulder opened a new exhibition to pay tribute to those we've lost. But for the local volunteers who helped install the Memorial Crane Project, it was about more than the end result. KUNC's Stacy Nick has more. There's an old Japanese legend that says, if you fold a
0: thousand paper cranes, your wish will be granted. The idea found its way to the U.S. with the 1977 children's book, Sadako and the Thousand Paper Cranes. It's based on the true story of a little girl who inspired others with her endeavor to fold enough cranes to cure her cancer caused by the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. Since then, the crane has become a symbol of peace and hope. Last week, local artists came to the Museum of Boulder to help with a similar effort the Memorial Crane Project.
3: You know, whenever I drive around town, I always think I miss Boulder.
0: Mario Poliferni is a Boulder singer, songwriter, and filmmaker.
3: Because it just feels like Boulder isn't really here anymore, but we're all still here. And so to be here with everyone today is a good reminder of that.
0: Poliferni is freeing paper cranes from their cardboard backing. They were sent to Boulder from nine different countries and 46 states.
3: And I jumped at the opportunity to come. Um, because I felt like it would really be a healing experience to participate in the installation. I totally forgot about this. Okay, so here's the other task, whoever's available.
0: Los Angeles artist Carla Funderberg understands that feeling. She began the crane project as a way to start her own healing process from the turmoil of the pandemic.
3: It started very small, I just started folding myself just to kind of process my own loss. Thinking
0: of the pain and isolation people have been through this past year, Funderburg chose the crane as a symbol of hope and transition. Because while the paper cranes may be created alone, she says when they're put together, in a way, they unite us.
3: The purpose is to, to recognize that what impacts you impacts me. Your loss is my loss.
0: Eventually, Funderberg plans to have exhibition sites in every state. So far, she's collected more than 120,000 cranes. Some made by her, others by people in the communities where the exhibition has stopped. Approximately 10,000 cranes are on display in Boulder including some very special ones.
3: It's in a maze, it's like a spiral. And as you walk through it, once you get to the center, um, the local community hung, I, it looks to me like um, a 1,000 cranes uh, for those 10 lives lost.
0: She's referring to the 10 strands paying tribute to the victims of the mass shooting at a King Superstore last month. The cranes actually weren't a part of the original exhibition plan, says museum executive director Lori Preston. A group in South Boulder started folding paper cranes. They had no idea what we were going to be doing in terms of the memorial cranes. The idea began with Boulder couple Meredith and John Bacchus and their daughter Lita. The family came home from the temporary memorial site that formed around the store and decided they needed to do something to contribute. Soon, neighbors were lending a hand as well.
6: And so they're all taped down for transport, and so we're we're releasing them.
0: (laughs) After the shooting, Vanessa Martin of Aurora says she wanted to help a community that is grieving the same way her community grieved when a gunman entered a movie theater there almost nine years ago.
6: Because of what Aurora has been through, very similar to Boulder, I mean, just the pain and the, you know, the tragedy, so... This was very near and dear to my heart because having gone through that with my community in Aurora, it's just sad. It, just, it still makes me <laughs> tear up, you know, so this
0: felt, felt really good to come and help. As she worked, Martin, who's a botanical illustrator, says she wonders about the hands that made the cranes.
6: I'm curious to go and to uh, get with Carla to go and find out just kind of, you know, where I mean, look at these little tiny ones, (laughs) it's very cool. Born and
0: raised in LA amid gun violence, Boulder-based artist Joseph Jimenez says he focuses his art on healing from that trauma. But on this day, he just wanted to help out another artist.
5: Just kind of need help, all right, I'll be there.
0: But looking out at the thousands of paper cranes, Jimenez says this is an opportunity for something he hasn't yet been able to do this year.
5: I don't think I've really processed it too well yet. Just like on the go, next foot forward, you know, I'm not thinking too much about what, what's behind. I know there's a lot of people who I see it in their faces, you know, it's like, I see the the pain, the confusion, or, you know, and just trying to process it. Um, I also see the faces of people who maybe don't have the time and space to process it. And so they're just kind of, you know, out there <laughs> kind of, Uh, uh, raw, raw, just like emotions, raw, you know, and just unable to process. For the museum, the connections
0: made at every stage of the project are an important part of the process. Again, Executive Director Lori Preston. It's been a long, you know, year, right, of artists especially not being able to be among people to express themselves, and so... Um, just making the call out to them to say, do you want to come and be a part of this installation that will become even bigger, uh, they jumped all over all right.
3: it. Oh my God, that is so beautiful.
4: <laughs>
0: but on this day, amid 10,000 paper cranes, a group of artists hope their wishes can come true and a path of healing can begin for us all. Stacy Nick, K1C Boulder.
6: Hey, awesome. Good job, everybody. Thank you so much.
0: The Memorial Crane Project will
2: be on display at the Museum of Boulder through September 17th.
1: ago at an elementary school in Broomfield, an eight-year-old student was restrained by the school principal in a position that ultimately led to the boy passing out.
2: The incident was investigated by the Colorado Department of Education After the boy's family made a formal complaint and the findings of that investigation, as well as similar investigations and the state's inability to mandate changes are the focus of recent reporting from our next guest, Melanie Asmar. Melanie is a reporter with Chalkbeat, Colorado, who has long been reporting on restraint and seclusion in Colorado schools. Melanie, thanks for joining us.
6: Thanks for having me.
2: Before we get into the ensuing investigation and some of the other parts of your reporting on all this, I want to start with the details of this incident at Cole Elementary School in Broomfield from a few years ago. Uh, Tell us what happened.
6: So this incident started the way that a lot of these incidents sort of start, which was that the student sort of refused to do his schoolwork. This was an an eight-year-old who was in the third grade. He started kind of ripping up papers and throwing them around the room. He broke a pencil and threw it, and um, the teacher tried to get the boy to calm down, and he wouldn't, so the teacher ended up calling the principal, and essentially, the principal ended up taking the boy to uh, a room, and these are rooms that a lot of schools have. They call them different things. This school called it a decompress room, and this room is essentially a place where students you know, who are sort of escalated can calm down. On this day, you know, when when the boy went into the decompress room, it sort of had the opposite effect and escalated his behavior. There were like some art supplies in this room and he threw them, he was slamming the door. Because of that, the principal shut the door, sort of shutting the boy in this room, which is a form of restraint called seclusion. And that, it seems, you know, escalated the boy's behavior even further The boy was trying to get out of the room. He was ramming the door with a chair. He was trying to hurt himself. There was a metal electrical box in the room with some metal conduit that went up the wall carrying wires. And the boy sort of stood on the box and grabbed the conduit and sort of pushing off the wall and falling backwards. And this is when the principal entered the room and put the boy in a physical hold, And what that looked like was the principal stood behind the boy, grabbed the boy's wrists and sort of crossed the boy's arms over the boy's chest. And while he was in this position, the principal said he felt the boy's body sag and he started calling the boy's name and the boy wasn't answering. At that point, I think the principal put the boy on the ground and called 911 and the office manager came in and sat with the child and she said he was um salivating heavily and and foaming at the mouth and yeah the boys they called the boy's mom too and and she arrived at the school and when she walked in she saw you know her son on the ground and and emts were evaluating him he was he was sort of regaining consciousness at that point and she took him home and and never brought him back to that school
2: Eventually, the boy's mom filed a formal complaint with the state, which spurred an investigation from the State Department of Education. I assume that's where we got a lot of these details. Um, But tell us what they found and what was the department's view on the matter?
6: So the department was investigating whether the school staff, mainly the principal, had used restraint and seclusion properly under the law and under state rules and they found several violations, you know, including that the principal had, uh, you know, had used restraint in a non-emergency situation, had used restraint with, with more force than necessary. And they expressed concern that, that the principal had executed these holds improperly and that the decompress room was not the ideal space to bring an escalated student especially given the stuff that was in that room, like the electrical box and the conduit. You know, they were questioning whether that was a safe place to put students who have escalated behavior.
2: And so with the investigation out, what did we hear from Boulder Valley School District and at Cole Elementary? Is is the principal still there? Um, what's happened since?
6: So yes, the, the principal is still at this school. And Boulder Valley says that they, even before the investigation was complete even before the state issued their findings that they had started to address some of the issues that the state had pointed out. Um, So the principal's training on restraint was out of date and the principal completed that retraining that they're supposed to do every two years. The district also put in place better reporting requirements because another issue in this case that the state pointed out was that after this incident happened, the principal filed a report, um, but the person at the district level who's in charge of looking at those reports never read it. And this incident was not included in the district's sort of annual review of restraint cases because the, the person at the district level in charge of that decided that, you know, had thought that these incidents lasted for less than five minutes which is sort of the the legal limit of what constitutes a restraint. And so she didn't include it in the annual report. And the state said, your annual review was incomplete. So Boulder Valley said, you know, we've improved our training processes, our ability to track these incidents, our review procedures. Now, whenever a staff member restrains a student, everybody has to file a report and we do like an on-site review every time this happens. So that was Boulder Valley's response.
2: What sort of mechanisms are in place for the state to follow up with these districts about how they're making these changes and that kind of stuff?
6: So there are no mechanisms in place. In this case, Boulder Valley says it, it did follow the state's recommendations. But if a district doesn't follow the state's recommendations, the State Department of Education is powerless to sort of, you know, force them to do so. That's different than in cases where a school district is found to have violated, like, federal special education law, in those cases, the State Department of Education can withhold funding, they can, like, mandate the district make changes, but in cases of restraint and seclusion, the state can only make recommendations, and then they have no process to sort of follow up and see whether the school district followed those recommendations, and they have no power to sort of force districts to make those changes. And a lot of advocates and families and attorneys who deal with these cases see that as a major weakness in the state law.
2: Right. And so what do they want
6: to see change? They would like to see the state law have some teeth. They would like the State Department of Education to be able to enforce these recommendations, to have them be more than recommendations, to have them be mandates to um, make changes in these types of cases.
2: Melanie Asmar is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. Melanie, thanks for chatting with us. Thank you. There's a whole lot more to Melanie's reporting that we didn't get into in this conversation. If you want to check it out for yourself, you can find a link to her reporting at our website, KUNC.org.
1: That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we hear about the benefits of using native plants in landscaping and gardens. I'm Erin O'Toole.
2: And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer.
1: Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.